0: This is Change in the Coalfields, a podcast by Coalfield Development, all about change in Appalachia. What change has happened, what change is happening, and what change still needs to happen. I'm your host, Brandon Dennison, founder and CEO of Coalfield Development. I'm really honored and excited to have Mr. Don Perdue here with us today. Don is a Wayne County legend and a personal friend of mine. We've done a lot of work together, and he's been a part of many change efforts here in the coal fields for many years. So, Don, welcome, and thank you for joining
1: Thank you, Brandon. Thank you for the opportunity.
0: So maybe just start off. Tell us a little bit about uh, about your career in, in southern West Virginia and some of the different change efforts that you've been a part of. And then um, we'll back it up and learn more about you as a person.
1: Well, first of all, my profession was as a pharmacist. That's what I did for the majority of my working life. But as I did that, I became more exposed, if you want to call it that, to the personal lives of people around me in this part of the world and that created a desire on my behalf to get involved uh, in some way to create a, a better atmosphere if you will. Appalachia is known for being sort of dark cynical and a friend of mine Dave Payton sa- said once that the philosophy is that well it could get worse and that's always impressed me as being probably true but should be wrong and uh, that that just is the is the sort of uh, bailiwick that I operate within for the for the first part of my professional life. So and, and that led itself to a desire to become more active in lifting that that sort of dark demeanor. So the other thing I remember that Dave said once in speaking about West Virginia, he said that the sign shouldn't say Wild Wonderful West Virginia, it should say West Virginia. It's not for everyone, <laughs> and that's quite true. Yeah. Uh, but how do we make West Virginia for everyone. How do we move away from that from that impression of the state that it's a dark, diminished existence? That in itself led me to get involved locally. There was a factory or a coal dock that was moving in close to my home and many of us didn't want the traffic and the dust and all those kind of things. So I, I was one of the forming members of something called the Wayne County Concerned Citizens. This was in 1996, 95. So we fought that. Uh, we we raised money. We hired a lawyer. We went to court. We lost, but we changed the way that that facility was was viewed, and we also changed the physical way that the property was entered, and it probably saved lives because at one at one time that coal loading facility was seeing 700 trucks a day, in 24 hours. I'd see 700 trucks. That was consuming. While that was going on, But the fact that we lost. It made me believe that the reason you lost wasn't because you weren't right, and it wasn't because you weren't righteous. It's because the other guy had the ability to define what right was. So I say all of that to say this. In 1998, I ran for the – actually, in 94, I ran for the House of Delegates and was defeated by the incumbent. And then I didn't think about it again until 1998. And uh, so I ran again, and I won. And then I, that allowed me to serve from 1998 to 2016 in the West Virginia House of Delegates. This was an interesting time. I, I sort of started out as that as that freshman on the back row, and then uh, after I had served for a number of years on the health committee, I was I was made the chairman of the health committee in the House of Delegates. The first year it became a major committee, which is it was a big accomplishment. They actually. Started viewing us like they do, judiciary and finance, and they moved health up to that to that level, and from that from that I was able to move up to the front row, and then uh, in 2012 I guess it was, uh, the other party took over the majority in the house, and I moved almost to the back row again, but not quite, and that made me feel like well okay they weren't mad enough at me to put me clear out, <laughs> and they must have thought I had something to say. So it was kind of in the middle. And during that time, in those legislative seasons and that legislative session, a tremendous number of really interesting and important and actually critical topics came up that I was able to participate in. I'm very grateful for that. The first one I can recall that really struck home with a lot of people was when we were trying to reduce the weight of coal trucks on our highways. Trucking industry literally surrounded the Capitol with these monster trucks. A car couldn't drive around the block. They literally circled the Capitol and did that for several hours. And it created some fear and trepidation amongst those of us who were trying to get the weights reduced. But at the same time, uh, a gentleman named uh, Mike Caputo had arranged to have people that wanted to see those weights reduced come to the Capitol. So they were there, the truckers were there, I was there. It was an amazing moment because we could hear them outside. They were blowing their horns. The engines were running at full throttle. And inside, these advocates, these protesters, if you were, were singing. If if you've ever been in the Rotunda of the Capitol, if you sing there, you can hear it all over the place. So it was an amazing sort of juxtaposition of of sound and thought. We were successful uh, after a period of time, uh, and that was gratifying for me.
0: And that was reducing the amount of the weight of coal a truck was allowed to legally carry on the road
1: right they in those days they had sideboards on the backs of those uh, big 18 wheelers and uh, they would load 26 30 tons 40 tons on those trucks we had one actually that wrecked right at the mouth of the road that I drive on right at the uh, where it comes out on us 52 and turned over sideways and dumped its load and hit a car lot and wrecked seven cars. And that was why we were trying to, to fight the, that coal load facility that it was going on right there. And that was about the time they decided to change the way the road ran. And my strongest belief is that God's not always looking the other way. And sometimes he sends messages in very vivid ways that we overlook. That that wreck of that coal truck was very vivid for me. I remembered that uh, when they circled the Capitol and we fought to get that done and got it done. It was very gratifying. It was like I had answered a call that I hadn't really hurt it the first time. The next thing, I guess, that sort of grabbed my attention about that same time, we were trying to raise the tax on spit tobacco, which is horribly undertaxed in West Virginia and was. It got to be a real brutal kind of uh, fight. And uh, I remember we wanted to make it commensurate with the tax on cigarettes. And no, they didn't want to do that. It's much, much, much lower. And so we actually got to raise it from, I think it was from 3% to 7% instead of the, what, 45% of this now, or whatever it is. We passed that that day on the House floor. A lady that I had a tremendous amount of respect for, Virginia Mahan out of Summers County. She came over to me, and she put her arm around me. She says, we did it, brother. I can't contemplate to this day how that struck me. She and I were not always on the same side, uh, and sometimes very vividly so. But I became her brother in that moment. And that's another thing that I learned that day, if you advocate for something that is the right thing to do, you will attract to yourself people you never knew and didn't think you would ever know. And they will have the same feeling you have, And that is real power. That is real power.
0: That depth of a bond of serving together.
1: Then uh, this would have been about 2006. I was notified, made knowledgeable of a bill that was being crafted called the Affordable Housing Trust Fund bill. The lobbyist who was pushing for that was making the rounds, trying to find somebody that would sponsor it so they could get it out there. He came to me and I looked at it at first and I thought, well, I don't know if that's going to work. And uh, he came to me later the same day. He said, you know, I haven't had any success yet. Will you sign on to this bill? I said, well, I'm not too sure, but yeah, I will. And I did. I was the first sponsor they had. The bill passed remarkably in a landslide, really surprised me because it was the first bill that I had ever gotten passed as a lead sponsor. I'd had several other passed along with the speaker and other people, but that one was passed with me as uh, as the lead sponsor. That bill created thousands of jobs, hundreds of homes, and made a, a house available to people who had never had anything but a home. And a house and a home must go together; they they just do. That was that was another really gratifying moment.
0: And that's a program that that's funded. That's helped fund several coal field development projects uh, to that agency.
1: I, I did. It did. It was amazing that it had such a broad impact when at the time I, I couldn't see it. I didn't see the depth of the surge it would create. I didn't see that, but at the time I thought, well, maybe this will do a little something. They did a lot. I think a lot of times good legislation achieves great ends that nobody ever anticipated when you started. The focus on healthcare was uh, really where I was most comfortable. I didn't know a whole lot about finance. I didn't know anything at all about judiciary, but I did know something about healthcare.
0: Being a pharmacist.
1: Yeah. And my committee attracted a lot of interesting people uh, with interesting ideas. And it taught me that you have to figure out how to take the talents somebody has and use them and to overlook any fractures in their personality they have because the good things that they're capable of will far outweigh tremendously outdistance anything else. It's a really hard thing to do. When I became chairman of the health committee around 2008, six, somewhere in there, I was able to pick bills out that I would want my committee to look at. You have to be more than careful. You have to be almost persistent in being careful. But by the same token, it gave me an opportunity to do some things. So it was around right about that time, I started seeing my culture become consumed by drugs. I would be at the prescription counter and I literally would see Whole families disintegrate in front of me. And these were people that ordinarily were stand up folks, had jobs. And I came to recognize that, you know, I was part of that continuum because yes, I had a valid prescription. Yes, I filled it for an opiate, but should I have? Morally, no. Legally, yes. That's a terrible dichotomy uh, with the people in my profession. And just, we'll see more of that as time goes on and these lawsuits grow. Being in the I thought, I. I can do something about this. What can I do that would bring the most positive result? Well, that winter, right before the legislative session, I met with eight people at the old Douglas High School in Huntington on a night when the snow was like four inches deep. I mean, it was almost impossible to get there, but we got there. And they had two guys come in to tell us about a place called The Healing Place in Louisville, Kentucky, and it was a recovery center. And they talked about it, and they were very energetic, very informative, When they finished, they said, by the way, we are both graduates of the Healing Place. And these were very erudite, well-dressed, extremely intelligent, well-educated, both had master's degree, young men. So those four or five, six folks that were there kind of grasped this opportunity. And so we started developing plans for the Healing Place, which became Recovery Point later. So that year, the attorney general in West Virginia had won a lawsuit against a drug company, and it wasn't, didn't have anything to do with opiates. It was something else. And it was $7 million he got. Well, he gave the money to the governor to use as he would. I started seeing what they were planning on using the money for, and it was all for interdiction and criminal intervention. It, it didn't have anything to do with the societal problem that I saw as a pharmacist. It didn't have anything to do with it. I started advocating with the governor's office to take a portion of that money and put it into a fund for recovery. It was a struggle today would never have existed. I mean, as soon as that money was available, they'd have turned it to something positive. But in those days, everybody really believed that the choices that people made determined their criminality. And it was entirely their fault and no one else's. I'm serious, that's exactly the way people thought. I enlisted the the assistance of uh, the fellow who's now our uh, chief justice of the Supreme Court, Evan Jenkins. Evan and I got a meeting with the governor's chief of staff. I spoke to him at length about it and how I believed it would help and we needed to do this and we can create something. The next day, we got word that he was going to take not quite a million dollars and set aside for recovery, such that it could be used to develop the healing place in Huntington. And we did that. And to this day, I think it's had over a thousand graduates, most of which are gainfully employed, have families. And that and the Affordable Housing Trust Fund are the two big things for me, big gratifications that I got. That's why I valued that part of my career so much. And looking back, and I figured out that in 18 years, I spent six years completely away from my family. And once I recognized that, I said, well, you know, it's not so important that I feed my ego by being a delegate. It is important that I feed my ego by being a good father and grandfather. Uh, I decided then it was time to pack it in. And I did. I don't regret it. Never had.
0: So you started out in, um, it's interesting, the Wayne County Concerned Citizens, sort of on the engaged citizen, sort of the civil society part of change, and then you've also been as an elected official on trying to drive change. How is change making as an elected official different from change making as a concerned citizen?
1: I think I could put it this way. When I was an advocate, member of Wayne County Concerned Citizens, when I was working to stop something, I surrounded myself with people who felt the same way had a buffer between me and our opponents. Our opponents, we would receive uh, legal letters from them and there would be newspaper articles, but there was no personal communication. So as an advocate, you have a lot of personal communication with people who feel the same way you do. When you go to the legislature or to any uh, elected post, yes, there are people there that feel the same way you do and are advocating for the same things you are, but you're in direct contact with people who absolutely oppose you for whatever reasons. And sometimes they can't even elucidate what they are. It makes you more aware of your arguments. It makes you better armed, if you will, to win the day. What you do is you figure out what the other guy wants and try to figure out a way to get what you want around that. It teaches the art of compromise in a dramatic way, albeit the thing that I did also learn was to learn that there are actually people who will not desert their principles. They may not be advocating the same way you are, but if the principle is the same, they'll be with you. I have a friend who sat next to me my last years in the session, who was a profound member of the Republican Party, opposite of mine, very conservative. Uh, in West Virginia, I'm known as being very liberal. I don't know if I could get a driver's license in Massachusetts. But there was a bill that came up that I really didn't like at all. I can't tell you how much I didn't like this bill. And Josh should have been on his team's side The issue was uh, forced pooling of gas reserves. In other words, if you had gas reserves and your neighbor had gas reserves and they sold all their reserves to somebody, then you would have to sell yours to the same person for the same price. That's what the bill said. But it had tremendous support, everybody from the Speaker on down. And the Speaker, as you may know, was actually Josh's boss. He was the, the Republican leader in the House. The final bill came up for voting, and he looked at me more than once. He said, you know, I can't be for this. The bill failed on a tie vote on a tie vote. He could have made all the difference in the world. His party knew that too. And in many ways, he was ostracized for that. It was a tie vote and it died. And it's never passed since. That moment, that ability to interact with somebody who doesn't believe the same way you do, but whose principles are the same as yours. And maybe that's the wrong way to put it. Who doesn't believe that issue, don't see, doesn't see that issue necessarily in the same light. His principles would not let him
0: vote for it. Well, and it's interesting, you know, opened with the Dave Payton quote, which of course we miss him. We all miss Dave. I know he was a friend of yours. You wrote a beautiful sort of memoriam to him and that was published in the paper about cynicism. And I do think um, a lot of what I'm hearing from you, Don, I mean, we have our challenges. You didn't win every battle you took on to fight, but change, it is possible and it does happen. And sometimes we don't celebrate that enough or open our eyes enough to the good change that has happened.
1: I agree. And and athletic culture being what it is, it's a little easier to look back than it is to look forward. Somebody said something the other day I thought was very, very intuitive. You risk failure. Everybody risks failure or should, some don't. But what he said, and I thought was very important, and I don't remember who it was, said, but you always have to fail forward. That's true. Because when you fail, you go you need to go back and figure out why you failed and how you can be successful. People who live here have gotten so used to not being successful, they've forgotten that every failure is an opportunity. And trying to present that in the right way is the challenge everybody who lives here has to accept. I worked for six or seven years after I retired as a pharmacist as the economic development director here in Wayne County. That's where I met you first. I started to see The truth in what you said. First time we met, you referred to something called social entrepreneurship. And that was a phrase I'd never heard. I certainly didn't know what it meant. I learned through you and coalfields what it means. And the successes, whatever successes I had in economic development, were all sort of tied to what you were bringing to us and how we could make it work. Our whole state could utilize a little bit of mentorship when it comes to understanding what it means to define yourself and not define yourself as others see you.
0: So you were born, obviously, you know a lot about West Virginia. Were you born and raised in West Virginia and even in Wayne County? Yeah, I
1: sure was. I was born born and raised in Cerrito, West Virginia. And I just wrote a piece for something my daughter's having me do about Cerrito. And it brought back memories and how things have changed so dramatically. And that's interesting because of our discussion here. When I was growing up in Cerrito, it's a little small bedroom community, a very conservative community. There were uh, two or three major companies that were operating there, manufacturing companies. There was a glass factory, actually two glass factories, a lumber mill that was very large. There were jobs. Most, most people had a job of some kind. There were folks who didn't, but they usually were disabled in some way. If you go back there now, those factories aren't there. They're not operating. The glass plant morphed into a rubber plant, which is no longer operating. So the immediate uh, employment in this area moved outward toward uh, Armco over in Kentucky and to International Nickel. If you got a good job, it was for one of them, or for the railroad. Uh, There's still a lot of stuff being moved on the rail lines, but it's not the same kind of stuff. When I was growing up in Cerrito, almost all your recreation was outdoors. and There were no indoor facilities for really anything. All the young people of that era recalled that when they left the house in the summer at nine in the morning, they were encouraged not to come back until the lights went on at night. It was just a way of life. During that time frame, Cerrito, West Virginia, if you've ever been there, you can go there. It's a lowly small town. People actually had hogs in their backyard. They had chickens butchering hogs basically on the city streets of Cerrito. In November in Cerrito, it was not uncommon to see a couple of hogs hanging in trees. Can you imagine how that would look today? That's a change. Probably a change for the better. But by the same token, that's a a sea change. It's a different way of looking at how you provide for yourself. It's mentally changed too. That town has gone through a lot of uh, manifestations through its tenure. And today, it's still very vibrant and, and vital kind of area. It probably should have died back in the 50s, but it didn't. I have to believe that that's because the people who lived there were willing to do whatever they had to do to, to sustain their life where they lived. And so they did. They they drove 40 miles for a the job. They were able to purchase the things that they ate. That was a a dramatic sort of change in my culture. At the same time, education with my parents was extremely important. Through high school, you were encouraged to get education, but you were not encouraged necessarily to carry it any further than high school because you could get a good job paying more money than you could teaching English uh, at Armco. There was a great thrust to sustain yourself through high school, but after that, you were just kind of, well, you just left on your own. I was the first person in my family to graduate from college. Seeing some of my, my schoolmates, my classmates, it's real grade school and, and CK middle school and Buffalo high school. I saw them try to raise themselves up, many of them. And that class I was in was phenomenal. I think we had like nine doctors and 15 lawyers. We had a bunch of business majors who became millionaires and retired at 40. And so it was, a, it was an era where improving your lot was really important. Today, I'm not so sure improving your lot. I think what it is, people have lost faith that they can in many ways. It goes back to what I was saying before. You have to inculcate in people the desire to define themselves in their terms and not someone else's.
0: Is that the main thing, Don, that you think for our future in the coal fields, That is that the main thing that really needs to change and shift? You
1: can't assume that your past will make you a future. You have to assume that today is where you'll make your future. And I do believe that a lot of our young people are starting to kind of get that. I, I really want to believe that. Being a father and grandfather, I, I'm very fortunate, my my children, my my son is a lawyer, daughter is working on her doctorate at Ohio University. University That is not something I even thought about when I was growing up. I never thought about even getting a professional degree. I became a pharmacist because I wanted to make, make enough money to buy the things I wanted to buy. Not because I was literally attracted to pharmacy. You know, I was driven by this desire to, to move my lot a little farther ahead of my parents. My mother and father from that generation, that was the lesson they really taught and pushed hard was that you need to be better and get better than you are today. You need to educate yourself such that you can be prepared for the changes that come. And that's what's happened in West Virginia. We weren't as well prepared for those changes.
0: Yeah. Even if we were clear-eyed, we, we the, the data was clear, but we just weren't willing to accept it.
1: Exactly, exactly. If you fall down every time you try to Go up a set of stairs, pretty soon you'll find another way around instead of really learning to get up the stairs and doing what it takes to get there. Uh, that's all kind of trite, but it really revolves around that whole business of, of making sure you define yourself. And don't define yourself in somebody else's terms.
0: Well, Don, thank thank you for your service to our state. Uh, our time together is full. You've you've lived a full life. I I feel like we're we're going to need to have you back uh, to to dive into more. But you've 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 done so much for Wayne County, for West Virginia, and for me as a mentor to me personally. Well, a labor of love. Well, thank you for your leadership, and uh, let's let truly let's let's stay in touch.
1: We'll do, Brandon. God bless
0: you too. Take care. Change in the Coalfields is a podcast created by Coalfield Development at the West Edge Factory in Huntington, West Virginia. This episode was hosted by Brandon Dennison and produced and edited by JJN Multimedia. Become a part of our mission to rebuild the Appalachian economy by going to our website, coalfield-development.org, to make a donation. You can email us anytime at info at coalfield-development.org and subscribe to our newsletter for up-to-date information on the podcast. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn by searching for Coalfield Development. Check back soon for more episodes.